Faith is a call to prayer. Prayer is a call to faith. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. In the Gospel of St. Matthew, we read, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Verily I say unto you, If you have faith, and doubt not, if ye shall say unto the mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things, whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing, ye shall receive. Paramahansa Yogananda showed by his own example that prayer is a power, provided we believe deeply in that power. When our thoughts and feelings are strongly focused and then united in growing awareness to the divine presence within, they can bring even seemingly unrealistic wishes to fulfillment. When Paramhansa Yogananda was in charge of his school in Ranchi, India, he took the boys on occasional outings to the surrounding countryside. There was a waterfall not too far away, he told Swami Kriyananda, where I took them sometimes. It was dangerous to cross there, but I would cry out to the boys, Do you believe in God? Yes, they would respond back enthusiastically. And so we always crossed in safety. Years later, after I'd gone to America, one of the the teachers tried to do the same thing, but he lacked spiritual power. One of the boys slipped on a rock and was drowned. Thus the master explained, Belief alone is not enough. It must be united to one pointed awareness, which leads to self-realization. The Bhagavad Gita in the sixth chapter underscores the necessity for such one-pointed concentration. Whenever the mind, fickle and restless, wanders off from its concentration, let the meditating yogi withdraw it resolutely, spurning every distraction, no matter how alluring, and bring it back again and again until the control of the self, until under the control of the self. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. from Whispers from Eternity. Volumes of thy Savior voice resound through the loudspeaker of every loving heart. The voice of thy wisdom roams through the ether of space, seeking everywhere hearts that are tuned to ecstasy. Sadly, thy warning sermons pass unheard 
by souls deafened with the static of sense pleasures. O divine broadcaster, tune our souls long distracted by the static of our indifference. Fine-tune us with the delicate touch of soul perception. Grant us the privilege of hearing thy magic melodies in the ecstasy of divine awakening. A number of years ago, when I was part of a pilgrimage trip to India, perhaps the last trip that we took in that way, before Ananda moved to India and the responsibility for that moved out of America and over to there, we went up to the temple Badrinath, which is up about 12,000 feet, and it's reputed to be the place where um, Babaji lives and the statue that they, the murti that they worship there is a, a natural carving on a stone that looks a great deal like the picture of Babaji. And that's the whole context of being there, which is not relevant to what I'm going to say, but it's a great place. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, while we were there, our guide took us up to meet a, a sadhu who lived in a little kutir about a thousand feet higher even than Badrinath. And we climbed up this little place and um, later on, our enthusiasm for this man waned a little bit, but at that time it was a pretty exciting meeting. Later when Swami Kriyananda asked me about it, I said it was a little hard for me to judge because I couldn't really tell what was his consciousness and what was just being in what undoubtedly for me and probably for many of us was a past life experience living in this tiny little kutir with a little opening and looking out and just seeing this huge Himalaya, owning almost nothing, just a very different life than the one Master has called us to this time, for sure, really different. But among other things, this sadhu told us that when the winter months came, this was, he was called Bakswala Baba, some of you know who he was, is, was, and he would go into this big metal box and he would go into a state of ecstasy and he would live there all through the snow. And uh, it was said that he, he didn't leave, that he was always there all through the snow. But what he said to us was that he wouldn't stay in his body. He would go in his consciousness, in his astral body, transporting his body, I don't know what, and he would go to, to be with Babaji, and he would spend the snow season with Babaji. And, you know, I'm a skeptical American, so that's why it's more fun to teach in India as a rule, but I'm one of the skeptical Americans who always go, yeah, like that. But there we were, and there was no reason to disbelieve him, and he just talked about it. And he talked about it in a very matter-of-fact way. And later on, when we were visiting with Swamiji on the same trip, and he was asking us about this man, and what did you think? What were your impressions? Um, and I mentioned to him how casually he talked about just going to be with Babaji in the Himalayas. And I was raising that as a question mark about who this man really might be. Uh, I'm not the one to judge, believe me, but Swami was just asking for our impressions. And Swami's response said, well, at a certain point, it simply becomes natural to you. And that, of the whole experience, was the thing that impressed me the most. That I live in a world in which the idea of going to be with Babaji in the Himalayas requires a certain soundtrack that sounds like we're moving outside of the normal and that this is so exciting. When we get there, we're so excited, we can hardly stand it, and that's why we don't go. <laughs> because it's not yet for us, for me, I'll speak for myself, 
It's not my natural state of consciousness. So even the mere mention of it separates me from it. And how many of our realities, it's just the mere mention of it separates us from it, separates us from it, because we haven't yet embraced it as our natural state of consciousness. And to Swamiji, it was more like the natural way he spoke about it made it seem more likely to be a truth than if he had in, in some way wrapped an ego spirit around it. Very interesting. Now we come to our Bible reading today, which is really extraordinary. Ask and it shall be given. It doesn't say maybe. It doesn't say ask in the right way to those who measure up, to those who meet the standard. Nothing. Ask and it shall be given. How simple could a statement be? And this statement was not speculation. This was declared by one who had the consciousness to know for whom such a statement was simply his natural state of consciousness. Ask and it shall be given. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door will be opened. Now, how many of us live on an everyday basis with that kind of calm confidence that if we go forward with any of those attitudes that the result will be such a foregone conclusion that no modifying words are required even to describe it. And then we ask ourselves later, why didn't it happen? I don't think we have to look very far. You know, I, I Swami Kriyananda wrote somewhere, and it's written, I, or I might even be in these commentaries, I'm not sure, but the phrase is this, every failure is a lack of attunement to the divine. And when I first read that, whenever he first wrote it or when I first noticed it, there was a certain rebellion in me. And I started thinking about, well, sometimes it's your karma to fail and all of these different ways of thinking about it. And I went to Swamiji with one of my complicated kind of questions, uh, which he has a marvelous way of just sort of not perceiving. You, you, You present to him this huge, like, complicated story, and he kind of acts like you didn't speak. (laughs) And he'll he'll just answer what you don't even know you're asking. But what he somehow knows you're asking, it's not a, a, what you would call a technique with him. It's not a method. It's not an egoically thought out. Words are not in themselves the point. Words are a vehicle for ideas. So we put out words But as Sri Yukteswar says in Autobiography of a Yogi, you need to try to hear behind the confusion of men's verbiage. person who makes their whole life with words, you know, that's such a depressing thought. (laughs) (laughs) The confusion of men's verbiage, what their true intention is. And of course, someone like Swamiji, who doesn't really operate on the intellect except incidentally, He he uses his intellect to say what he needs to say, but that's not where he operates from. So I bring to him this rather complicated thought, and he just simply affirms the statement. Well, all failure is a lack of attunement to the divine because we're trying to do the wrong thing. We're trying to do something in the wrong way. We're doing it with half of our consciousness and the other half of our consciousness really is pretty sure that no matter what we do, it's not going to work anyway. And then I'll be get to say, aha, I told you. You know, the, the classic one about if you have pray with faith, the mountain will move. The man goes and demands that the mountain moves and then looks up the next morning and it's still there. 
and responds, I knew you would still be there. Well, because it's not yet our natural state. And then in this particular reading, Swamiji explains it. He says that we have to pray with all our energy focused. And then he adds to that, and with increasing attunement until we merge with the divine within. Now, reading that this time, I love the fact that we have this returning cycle of, of readings because we do it one week and then another year goes by and as we reach a certain age, years go by really, really fast. And you meet the same one again and you get another opportunity to understand what this really means. Words being just a vehicle for consciousness and a vehicle for ideas, what does this really mean? Well, first of all, one-pointed concentration. Swami, again, I'll use him as the example because he's the one we know, he lives it for us. Swamiji has often remarked that the secret both of his prodigious creativity and the multitude of fields in which he is capable of being created is the result of one word, concentration. He says when he's writing music, he can't even imagine how you could ever express yourself in words. When he's writing words, he just can't even remember what it feels like to use the language of music. Whatever it is that he's doing, there is no other reality beyond that. And how often all of us, we try to do something and even as we're doing it, we're in the past, we're in the future, we're in the failures of the past, or we're living on the successes of the past. Or we're imagining, when I finish this book, think of all the great things that are going to happen. After I deliver this speech, think of all the great things that are going to happen, whatever it might be. But we're everywhere, but right there in the moment doing it. When I wrote the book about Swami Kriyananda, and afterwards I had to do, I, I chose to do an audio recording of it with, Chaitanya was there with me and we recorded this. It was fascinating to read the words that I myself had written, and therefore I was pretty familiar with them, having been over them lots of times. But the trick I began to understand of doing the audio book, because when a person reads, especially if you have a verbal mind like I do, you're always way ahead of yourself when you're reading. Your eye is stretching ahead. You know what the next sentence is. I edited that book so many times, I practically had it memorized. I could have almost closed it and recited it. So every word I would anticipate. But I realized if you're going to record it with full consciousness, you have to really be entirely and only in the word that you're saying. Now, that would be interesting in itself, but here was the other part of it. I found myself strangely doubting as to whether the next word would be there. <laughs> if I didn't just scoot ahead a little bit with my consciousness and make sure it was on the line. And it, I mean, it didn't rise to the level of actual fear, but it was amazing to me the, the slight tension that I felt when I tried to give myself entirely to one word on a piece of paper, knowing that in a very short period of time, I was going to have to do the next one, but not yet. And it became for me such an interesting teaching, isn't it? How often in our lives, wherever we are, whatever the assignment is, whatever the aspiration is, whatever the creative work, we're not quite sure there's going to be a future unless we push a little bit of our ego out there to make it happen. 
like that, right? And then are we one-pointed in our concentration, one-pointed in our focus? And then, of course, how can we possibly be ever more deeply attuned to the divine presence within until with greater and greater awareness we merge into that presence? Because that presence is not our egoic anxiety. That present is not our really, I hope, I hope, I hope this really works out. That presence is not us at all. Even that modicum of self-concern that fears somehow that if I don't take care of it, it won't be taken care of. And how many of the scriptures over and over again tell us, you know, look to the birds of the field. Are they not clothed? Are they not taken care of? Are they not fed? Do you think that you are any less dear to God, to Guru, to Divine Mother than those birds that live in the field? And yet we think, but I, you know, this is what I have to do. And yes, it's true. We have to do our part. But we so often use our energies in ways that work against our own true interest. That's Swami Kriyananda's statement. All failure is a lack of attunement. Because God really wants to open the door that we're knocking at. He really wants us to find what we're seeking. But we're so confused about what we're seeking. And it's not a lack of clarity or a lack of divine intention on God's part about what he could and would give us. It's a lack of of clarity in our own hearts about what our natural state of consciousness is, who we really are, and where our happiness really comes from. Is this an easy thing to just snap your fingers and make happen? No, alas, it isn't. But if we're going to live anyway, which of course we are, and if we're going to strive to accomplish things, the more, the more intelligently we can direct our energy, the more divinely inspired we can be in the way that we live these teachings, the more these teachings will prove themselves to us. It's very hard. I've been very conscious recently of the passage of time because I've lived in a body that has reached a certain age. And even though that in itself is not such a significant event, I have this life memory of many, many, many days of being on the spiritual path. And it's so strange because you can look at pictures and You can pull out fragments of experience and you can reminisce and all these different things are true. But of course, everything that isn't now always has a dreamlike quality to it. But there is one factor on the spiritual path, which I hope and pray all of you have experienced in the same way. It's a lot better now than it was when we started. You know, those very first tests, those very first moments when oh my God, look what we've gotten ourselves into. You know, this sounded so good on paper. This seemed like such a good idea. I will overcome the ego. I will transcend all of these limiting desires. I will become one with the infinite. That's for me. And then God just grabs a hold of the tiniest little part of you and pulls a little like that. And this, well, sense of panic sets in. You know, like... What do you mean? How could that be happening? And this wave of self-justification just comes out of us like a tsunami. And we have no idea that we're justifying ourselves. We just think we're making the situation more clear. (laughs) 
you know, if you really understood, it's important. Those are the, those are the conversations I had with Swami where he would just stare at me. <laughs> just wait. My favorite, my absolute favorite. Well, no, I, I go back and forth on what my favorites are. This was one of my really, really, really good ones, though. Let me try to think exactly what the context was. Oh, yes, I was struggling. He'd given me a writing assignment, which was always my nemesis until recently, and now it isn't anymore. But he really always wanted me to write, and I, I don't know what happened in previous lifetimes when I wrote, but something really bad, because I was very phobic about it. And he'd given me a writing assignment, and I was just in a state of absolute collapse over the necessity to do it. And I went to see him, and I just came apart at the seams, just completely. And I believe I was sobbing. I must have been sobbing. At least I was weeping. And I was sitting there sobbing, and I was waiting. Oh, yes, I remember what happened. Just before he saw me, this other woman had been talking to him about some heartbreak. And I, he was so sweet to her. He was so supportive and so, uh, you know, understanding. And I thought, well, I've caught him on a great day. <laughs> and I came in, and then I presented to him my, you know, tragedy. And I was going through a similar emotional state. And I became aware of the fact that not only was he not responding, he wasn't even sitting where he had been sitting. And I looked up, and at that time we didn't have any electricity and we had all, we, you know, everybody had to have a flashlight. It was an important part of life, and little batteries, not rechargeable, and your batteries would get low, and you'd throw all your weak batteries into a certain place, and someday you would measure them all to see which ones were good, and you would throw away the others like this. I mean, it is a job you don't ever do. I'm here with the tragedy, and Swami has opened the drawer where all the weak batteries are, and he's... <laughs> I'm not kidding. He has a flashlight. He's testing all his batteries. I'm dying over here. And he's testing his batteries. By the grace of God, I have always trusted Swamiji. And even in the moment, I thought, this is so weird. This is so weird, there's got to be some really important message here. But it also made me a little mad, I have to say. <laughs> Just a little annoyed, you know. I wanted sympathy. Where was the sympathy? So I had the sense to just go home. And that annoyance for lack of sympathy turned into force of will. And the force of will faced the project, successfully completed the project, and then the whole thing was done. I mean, a few experiences like that, and you don't doubt. But here's what was fascinating to me about it later. And this was like, you know, a few weeks later. There was a satsang, a whole community satsang. And Swami Kriyananda, I never before or since has he ever said anything like this about me and rarely about anyone else. He said... Asha had an extremely important test to face, and if she hadn't faced it, she would have, I think he actually said, left the path. He said, but I couldn't help her with it. She had to do it herself. I said to him afterwards, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> he said, because I thought it wouldn't help. And he was actually right. It would have frightened me tremendously. Okay. 
you know, there is this force on the spiritual path. There is this reality on the spiritual path that we simply have to face into it. And nobody can do it for us. We really want other people to do it for us, and we want also people to feel sorry for us. Swamiji, in, counts, in teaching us how to counsel people, very interesting advice he gave once. Be sympathetic, but not too sympathetic. He said sometimes if you're too sympathetic to people, it increases the idea in their mind that this is a big problem. Wow, isn't that something to think about? One-pointed concentration followed by ever deeper attunement with the divine power within us. That's how it happens. That's how we can ask and it shall be opened. And whatever it is, and this is what I was going to say about the passage of time, I used to be very interested in what was wrong with me. Everybody else was really bored by what was wrong with me, but I was extremely interested in it. And after a period of time, I realized it's just not how progress happens. How progress happens is we just simply take our mind off of whatever it is and we tune in ever more deeply to the divine. We live one word at a time with the absolute faith that whatever the next word is, we can depend on it going to be there. I'm inclined lately to give advice, which is usually not understood. It takes a little while. Somebody will describe to me some huge problem they're facing. I said, don't worry, something will happen. <laughs> and they'll try to say, you mean it'll work out? Oh, not necessarily, but something will happen. Something always happens. We progress. We reach, we finish this word, we move to the next word. And then we look at that word and we concentrate on that. And that's all we can ever actually deal with. The rest of it is just entertaining ourselves in a not very positive way. It's so wonderful to just lose interest in yourself. And I think that's most of what the spiritual path is. My, my theories are a little wacky sometimes. I would not put that one on Master or Swami, but we just kind of lose interest. We are here right now. Ask, ask, and ask with every ounce of strength that you can muster, remembering that those people who are a lot smarter than us, Jesus, Master, Swamiji, all the great masters from all times, they all give us the same advice. You're worried about nothing. There's absolutely nothing to worry about. You're just entertaining yourself with interest in your own shortcomings. And at a certain point, hallelujah, praise the Lord, it gets so boring. And I think that's what actually happens. It just gets boring. That's Master's words in Autobiography of a Yogi. Don't you love it? The reason you, you become interested in the spiritual path is because of the anguishing monotony of the whole thing. You would expect it to be like something more interesting. Even tragedy, they explain, is entertaining. Monotony is what really gets you. Oh, here we are again. Are we really here again? Just doing this? Just being self-concerned and being worried and being divided in my consciousness and thinking about the past and anticipating the future. Swamiji is so exact in that advice. Even when he's talking about success, he said something extremely interesting. He said, when you, as soon as you do something successfully, do your best to completely forget it. Because even thinking about how you've triumphed in the past clouds you in the present. Swamiji is blessed without ever having writer's block. I had terrible writer's block for a long time, and 
I was talking to him about it, and he just said, hmm, never had it. <laughs> Except once, once he had it. When somebody said, oh, you write so beautifully, you must have been Shakespeare in a past life. And then he said he sat down to write, and the thought came into his mind, mustn't disappoint my public, just like that. And he said he just couldn't get one sentence to work. Every, everything he tried was confused. And then he realized that the thought was in his mind that he had some duty to fulfill. He was in the past, he was in the future. And as soon as he repudiated that thought, it was obvious how it needed to flow. All failure is the lack of attunement. It's so simple, really. And of course, if we're trying to do the wrong thing, wrong thing meaning because it's not really in our best spiritual interest to do it, because it may be a dream that is, is not connected to the reality of our nature, maybe it's not in the divine interest of those around us, who knows, that attunement will be difficult. So it's not just enough to concentrate on what we desire, as Swami explains, but we also have to pair that concentration with an ever-increasing awareness of the divine within. And whatever blocks us from that awareness is also part of what's going to cause us not to succeed. And we just keep working with this. The fantastic fun of this spiritual path, which of course you could think of as depressing, but don't, you know, <laughs> is that it is literally infinite. And I grew up in El Paso, Texas, and to get anywhere from El Paso, you had to drive hours across the featureless desert down these long straight roads. I remember being little kids in the back seat, you know, just the, the, the game. Daddy, are we there yet? No, not quite, because there were endless roads in front of us. But I was very familiar as a child with that kind of mirage that happens out on those roads, where there's the water that appears to be on the road, and no matter how fast you drive, you can never quite reach it because it's really an illusion. It's not really there. And I remember my father used to play the game with us. Okay, this time we'll catch it. And we would try really hard and we could never, of course, actually catch it. That image has always been with me in terms of the spiritual path, but not in a negative way. For me, it's always like, oh, look, there's a little farther to go. This is, is more joyful than it was 10 years ago. This is much more joyful than it was 30 years ago. But this is not yet it. There's still something shimmeringly beautiful out there and how fascinatingly interesting. You know, we'll never get bored, we'll never get old unless we choose to. Because there's always more. We can always knock on one more door and there's always one more expansive bubble of bliss that God really wants to give to us if we can concentrate on it wholeheartedly and attune ourselves ever more deeply to that divine presence within. What an extraordinary promise. And that promise is not just given to a few. It's given to everyone with ears to hear and the heart to receive it. God bless you.